on 2NURFM 103.7, where it's time for Finance Talkback. And uh, Barry Preston joins us as usual. Hello, Barry. Good afternoon, Jane. How are you? I'm fine. It's and a lovely day. It is a beautiful day. And Not a, a lovely day, day in the stock market, of course. To be but talking it. about the stock market. There's been <laughs> so much happening Absolutely. In, in the well, world look, of finance. Uh, we're very fortunate today to have Dr. Christopher Caden, who is the Chief Economist for BT Financial Group, and he was Chief Economist at Bankers Trust from 91 to 99. And from 94 to 97, he was also chairman of the Indicative Planning Council, which advised the government on matters relating to the housing industry. Previously, he worked in the Treasury, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and for an, and for an economic consulting firm in the United States. Chris was educated at the University of Adelaide and the University of Pennsylvania. Our local, national and world financial systems are built on trust, and this once strong confidence is severely tested now. Will we see changes to the way the financial system used to work? Well, we see changes the way the financial system used to work. Not necessarily um, so much in Australia because um, essentially the trust is still there. The move on the weekend, for example, to guarantee um, individual bank deposits was um, yeah, perhaps not quite the cure for which there's no disease, but um, <laughs> um, but uh, really wasn't necessary except that people had lost some um, confidence in the, in the banking system uh, worldwide. Uh, yeah, I think we'll see very uh, different financial systems, a very different attitude towards um, risk-taking, more regulation, um, and it's going to be interesting to see exactly how the shape does change. We know it has to happen. Yes. We know that we can't afford a recurrence of the um, the uh, issues that led, led us to the current position, but I am really glad that it is somebody else's job and not mine <laughs> exactly what to do differently. Chris? One reads that markets are starved of liquidity, and although governments are pouring money into the system, how are lenders starved of liquidity? Well, essentially, uh, I suppose lenders are starved of liquidity because too many um, financial institutions, and we're talking about the world here basically, um, have found themselves with um, too high a ratio of debt to assets because the value of their assets has been written down, mainly because mortgage-backed securities uh, are not worth what they used to be before people in the US and elsewhere stopped repaying their mortgages. Um, So essentially, um, uh, financial institutions are more concerned with uh, repairing their balance sheets than with... um, uh, than with uh, lending out money. And it's very difficult for them to fix that because every time they try to uh, get their debt down by selling off their assets, the price of the assets drops further. Keeps going. And, mm. and uh, you're, you're in a downward spiral. And the other thing, of course, the other thing that is trying up uh, liquidity is um, with so many financial institutions in trouble, with so many dominoes already having fallen, um, every, you know, every financial institution basically is aware that there's a risk in lending to any other financial institution. Right. So, um, uh, so basically, uh, what they call interbank lending, lending between banks, has pretty much uh, shriveled up to zero. And it's almost as if, um, you know, there, there's no oil in the, well, there's, there's less oil than is necessary to keep the economic engine uh, running as smoothly as it should. So will government priming assist, and, and how do governments pump money into the system? Well, um, there are a number of ways, uh, but the, um, the simplest way... Um, although it involves something we never thought we would have done. Uh, but the simplest way, basically, involves um, government simply buying uh, buying equity or buying shares mm-hmm. in banks and other financial institutions. That's the way the U.S. is now going to go. That was the plan announced by the U.K. last week. It essentially means, you know, governments finish up owning part of the banks. 
Interesting. Look, you said that uh, well, we we believe the major reason for the position of the world financial system, the, the world financial systems faces now is due to the unrealistic lending policies, probably maybe stupid is a better word, of a lot of investment banks, many of which don't exist. Uh, could this? Uh, could we add this cheap money over the many years and various regulators, particularly the USA Fed, cutting interest rates quickly? Oh yes, I think there was probably something to that um, for a number of reasons. Um, financial institutions, and again, particularly in the US, but it wasn't limited to them, found themselves awash with um, with funds. Uh, should we say in you know, two thousand and four, five, and six, and they almost literally ran out of good people, good risks to lend it to. So what do you do then? Well, um, mm-hmm. you've um, you basically. Um, uh, lend it to people who are not good risks, um, particularly if you're if you if it is likely that you can flick, if you like, the mm-hmm. responsibility uh, for for the action you've just done. You just basically clip the ticket on the way through, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So so there was too much um, uh, lending done to people basically who uh, had really no business um, taking the loan in the first in the first place. And this would all have been okay so long as the asset that they uh, they all they're borrowed to purchase. And I am simplifying here, but this is the guts of the problem. Um, This would have been okay so long as the asset just kept going up, up, up in price. And they don't, do they? Uh, But, um, yeah, so the whole thing basically began to unwind when Mm. the house prices began to fall rather than rise in the U.S. Chris, did some of the Australian fringe lenders succumb to similar policies to a certain extent? Um, On it, it certainly isn't any, uh, a systemic problem in Australia. The share of mortgages in Australia that are sort of equivalent in category to subprime mortgages in the U.S. is about 1%. In the U.S. at its peak, it was probably closer to 15 mm. Huge. Mm. Look, to clarify the meaning of the word bank, we talk about this quite a lot. What's the difference between an investment bank and, say, a bank, an Australian bank as we know them, the ANZ, Westpac, CBA, the Bank of Queensland, Building Societies and Credit Unions? What's the difference? Well, banks have um, pot plants in the lobby. Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) I like this. um, uh, Banks, a traditional bank, basically, uh, in the simple model, it gets a bit more complicated than this, but basically they they, they take in money from retail deposit either then run a checking account for them or else, uh, you know, pay them interest for a time deposit. And they basically uh, funnel out that money to people who want to borrow. And these are frequently um, uh, individuals wanting to borrow to purchase a house. Um, Investment banks are a lot more complicated than that. A lot of them don't have a retail deposit base at all, um, but they're, they're, um, their tentacles, if you like, are, um, are broader. They do, um, uh, they basically organize the, the, the banking and the, uh, and the investment issues for a lot of, basically for a lot of business, Australian mm-hmm. business, United States. So, you know, an investment bank, for example, will have a trading room, will deal in foreign exchange, will deal in corporate bonds, will make markets in, um, in various assets. So it's a far more, it's a far more complicated model. Right. Um, and, um, one that we've, well, the, essentially one that we found can go astray. So <laughs> the difference, I guess the difference, um, one difference you could say between, um, ordinary banks and investment banks is that ordinary banks still exist. Fair enough. Now look, if regulations are so good in Australia, maybe other countries might look at ours after all we're one of the smallest uh, players on the planet. But we seem to be getting it right. Uh, yeah, I suppose we may serve as a model for some other places. Um, the 
Uh, of course, it's a bit easier because, uh, you know, there are really only, well, there are four major banks, um, as you know, in Australia. So it, I'm sure this doesn't actually happen, but it would be quite possible, basically, to get all the big uh, decision makers and the government and the regulators basically all sitting around the one table and sort of nothing out uh, how the whole thing should work. In the U.S., by contrast, you've got thousands of banks, mm. uh, and uh, that alone tells you they're going to be a lot harder to regulate. It's going to be a lot harder to find out who the cowboys are before, um, you know, before the cowboys have done their damage. So, yeah, there may be something to be learned from the rest of the world from the Australian model. Chris, we're going for a little break, and when we come back, we've got a lot more questions that uh, listeners have actually phoned in before, and uh, even our panel operator's got a question to ask you. So if you just hang on there for a moment, we'll be I, back in I a moment. I want to ask my question first. Oh, right did you? I apologise. Because it's about Australian banks, and I know that our share market follows the American very much, or seems to. Um, our bank share prices have been up and down all over the place, but probably mainly down since this all began. But if our banks are getting it right, why is our share price falling as well? Well, uh, it, it, it is a good question, but, um, but while the banks are getting it right and while they don't have the issues that um, many do overseas, you know, for example, the cost of funds of Australian banks has been affected by the world credit market conditions um, because although, as I just um, explained, you know, they, they, they engage with retail depositors, um, um, Australian banks also raise about half their funding, in, in round terms, about half their funding from offshore. So the cost of their funds has been driven up. So it has been harder for them to make a buck, if you like. So um, the earnings outlook, I guess, for um, Australian banks um, has been uh, damaged by what's going on overseas. And so, uh, you know, if your earnings outlook is damaged, you're... Um, uh, you're um, Price, the price of your share tends to come down also, although having said that, the, uh, the PEs for um, the price-earnings ratios for most Australian banks look quite attractive right now. So, so they, 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 logically, their, their share prices should have come down. As a matter of fact, they've probably come down significantly more than they needed to. And you're listening to Finance Talk back on 2NURFM 103.7. And, Barry, we're talking to Dr Chris Caton. We certainly are. And Dr Chris Caton is the Chief Economist of BT Financial Group and a well-known uh, Australian economist and analyst and commentator on TV I've seen many times. Chris, the Australian government statements that all depositors' funds will be guaranteed for three years. What implications do you see this having on, say, let's look at three questions, confidence in going about our daily life? Well, number one, um, first of all, I think that um, retail depositors should have had full confidence in the Australian banking system beforehand. But, uh, but I have been surprised by how many people have asked me in the last month, is my money safe in the bank? Very much so from us too. Yeah, so, uh, you know, so by guaranteeing bank deposits, basically, the, um, uh, the government has removed that element of uncertainty. Uh, mm -hmm. It is important. To, uh, I think the thing about a banking system is that even the, even the best managed bank out there has a problem if all the depositors want their money back at the same time. That's right. Um, and so you have to stop people from all wanting their money back at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right, then. What about trade with other countries? What's this going to have? I'm sorry, the guaranteed bank deposit? Yes, the, 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 the Australian government guaranteeing bank deposits. Will that have any effect on trade with other countries? It doesn't have much of an effect, I wouldn't have thought. Fair enough. What about detriments now or in the future? Will there be any detriments to this? Uh, well, I suppose that um, uh, 
it, it, it left on its own this measure whereby if you put your money in the bank, the government's going to guarantee it no matter what the bank does, essentially, could, could lead to a little more um, risk-taking by banks than you might... Um, than you might otherwise uh, get. But um, I think we need to worry about that if and when it becomes an issue. Probably the shareholders should jump on them then. Well, it's very difficult to organise shareholders, isn't it? it yes, yes. Now, the, the payment that is going out to low-income earners um, with the economic rescue package, uh, a lot of people in the community would see that it doesn't necessarily have any, anything in it for them. Does this package actually have something in it for everybody? No. Um, it's intended to. It's uh, basically intended to, you know, to put. You know, we've got a limited amount of money at our disposal. Um, the money is, is put in the hands of people they think will spend it um, and uh, therefore contribute to the Australian economy. And it's um, so it's. <coughs> I'm not sure if the flu has reached Newcastle yet. No, it hasn't. Um, please. <laughs> um, I don't think you can catch it over the phone. Probably not. Um, the. Um, uh, so, no, it doesn't go to everybody, but, you know, it goes, for example, to um, uh, home purchases and first-home buyers, so it should have a, well, first-home buyers in particular, and particularly those who buy a newly constructed dwelling. So it's it's targeted, um, and uh, actually, in times like this, when you do have emergency fiscal packages, you're supposed to go by the, the three T's, if you like, which says the measure has to be timely, mm-hmm. targeted, which means, and targeted means not everybody will get it, and also temporary, and uh, we fulfil those. Interesting. Chris, it's been fair play to knock the banking system, but in the scheme of things, now probably we can see and be probably somewhat thankful for them being what they are, very profitable, very strong, stayed and regulated, something probably lacking in other countries by the look of it. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I can find the... <laughs> That's not so much a question as a statement. That's right, your statement. Yeah. I agree with it fully. But backed up by yourself. Okay, let's get on to interest rates. We got a wow 1% recently, probably with more to come. And apparently, what dangers do you see this lurking in the central bank's action? What dangers do you see this from the central bank's actions of reducing interest rates so big? Oh, I don't think that there are many dangers at all. And there are almost certainly, and you, the word almost is probably redundant, there there are more interest rate cuts to come, perhaps another full percentage point by the end of the year and maybe even more after that. We have switched into emergency um, monetary policy mode, if you like. The Reserve Bank is determined to do whatever it can to immunise the Australian economy from, you know, the weak, weak activity being caught, if you like, from the rest of the world. The only possible danger is that um, the Australian economy would have been quite resilient if we hadn't cut rates, so we've once again overstimulated and and therefore added to inflation pressures um, because we do still have something of an inflation problem in Australia. But I think that's relatively minor, mm-hmm. although you'd have to say the fall in the exchange rate um, it presents some interesting challenges for it, uh, future inflation in Australia. It certainly does, and we'll get onto that in a moment. But you know, when the RBA when the RBA recently cut the rates by one percent, which is a hundred basis points, as they talk about it, we saw the banks, building societies, and everyone hold back a little bit. Now, this is not the first time they said their wholesale funding costs were up. How do Australian banks and financial institutions get their funding in the wholesale market? How do they get it? I actually talked about this um, a little just bit. Just a minute ago, yeah. Most of, um, you know, they, uh, obviously the banks rely on their retail depositors for a lot of their funding, mm-hmm. um, but they do also raise money in the wholesale markets, and those are sort of driven by global credit market conditions. So when the Reserve Bank cuts 
the cash rate, um, the cost of funding for the banking system doesn't go down by a full percentage point. Indeed, even, um, well, I haven't checked mine lately, but even retail deposit rates paid by the banks probably don't go down by a full percent because the banks basically still, still see that as a relatively cheap source of funding. Very much so. So um, they may have cut rates by less than um, the full amount of the cash rate. Very interesting. Now, look, as a leading economist, what's your prediction on rate cuts before December? Uh, probably um, probably another full percentage point, maybe a half in early September, half in early um, uh, December, certainly with financial market volatility continuing. Hmm. That's, um, that seems uh, almost locked in by now, by now. And look, here's a real guess, by June next year. Uh, well, the cash rate will probably start with a four, whether it's four and a half or four and three quarters, not sure. So that means, you know, there's another full percent and maybe a percent and a half for the variable mortgage rate to come down. And this is not advice, of course, but maybe if anyone was looking at locking in, you wouldn't want to lock in just yet. But um, there are, of course, some very attractive um, fixed rate products out there, but you'd have to you'd have to take into account the fact that variable rates coming down further mm. in sort of in, in figuring out you know should you go fixed for three years or what do you think is the trajectory of <laughs> variable rate over that entire period? Nobody knows, do they? No. Okay, look, probably the big challenge in cutting rates to stimulate the economy, but all Australians are some of the world's per- biggest personal borrowers. I mean, our percentage of consumer borrowing to household income has increased tremendously. Do you, see, do you see this adding to the problem or people be a little bit more cautious now? There's no question that has happened uh, in, in broad terms. The, um, the debt-to-income ratio has, um, was essentially, um, uh, well, it's, it's probably gone from, you know, say in around about 1990, your average household in Australia had um, household debt that was about equal to 50% of its annual income. Mm. It now has household debt to equal to about 160% yeah. annual income. So it's gone up hugely. And um, a lot of that time, of course, um, I mean, it's easier to get debt now. And uh, for a long, long time, debt was cheaper. So why wouldn't you buy more of it? Um, lately, uh, the ratio between debt and income is no longer rising. So I think people are starting to pull in the belt. Now, mm. for any one individual... That's a very prudent thing to do. But, um, if, for example, I mean, if people are not prepared to continue to increase their debt faster than their income, among other things, that means you can't be overly optimistic about the immediate future for house prices. Interesting. Mm. And as a lot of borrowers are not, you know, it's the, all, a lot of the borrowings are not to generate wealth, but on consumer items, TVs, cars, etc. That's really not good for the economy, the Australian economy overall, is it, or not? Uh, well, um, I suppose, you know, consumers should be free to borrow to purchase whatever they want. Um, but, uh, of course, most of the debt that is um, uh, is on household bal- um, balance sheets, basically, is used to purchase housing. Hmm. Um, the, the TVs and the cars, etc., that's all signs of, you know, the purchasing now rather than saving up and purchasing it. That's just a sign of the way we are now. Um, hmm. um, but, um, yeah, yeah, it's not it's not particularly productive, and it does mean that individual borrowers can come unstuck. If A, uh, interest rates were to rise, well, that's not likely, or B, they lose their jobs. That, you know, and the risk of losing, losing jobs has gone up. Hmm, interesting. Look, before we go for a break and a little bit of humour, may I suggest we start and educate our children on budgeting at school? Maybe that should be a subject instead of uh, history. Uh, I don't think the history's been sitting in very well at the moment, if we look back on the, the borrowing history. No, that's perhaps, that's perhaps right. Is Australian currency considered to be a speculative currency? Uh, 
you know, overseas hedge invest, overseas investors and hedge funds seem to speculate in it. And is it a sought-after currency throughout the world? Um, I suppose the answer to those questions are yes and yes. Um, the uh, I, it's all, almost like the Australian currency is something you take a bet in, you know. <laughs> um, the, um, and it, it is it is sought after all over the world in the sense that um, it's probably like the sixth or seventh most traded currency in the world. Now we're a long, long way from the sixth or seventh um, uh, biggest economy in the world. Yeah. Mm. And even, even, of course, all the there are a lot of big economies that just get wrapped up under one name, namely the euro. Mm. But um, yeah, considering Australia's size in the world, the Australian dollar is traded a lot, and traded uh, obviously a lot, lot more than is necessary just to meet the demands of you know the international trade in goods and services. It's like a commodity. Yeah, it's like people just having a pump. Okay, but look, last week we had a listener, Bill, and he asked a very simple but very stimulating question. What causes the Australian dollar to fluctuate so much, and is there a major player in the Australian currency? Um, what causes it to fluctuate so much um, is, uh, uh, is a very interesting question, and, uh, you know, the fluctuations in the past three months have just been, I mean, so far outside the range of historical experience, it's difficult to believe it's happened even after it's happened. You know, we've yeah. 98 cents to 65 cents in about three days, and if you just, in about three months, and if you just chart the Australian dollar, nothing like this has ever happened before. Is, right. there ma- is there a major player? I don't think so. There may be some... Um, you know, some hedge fund selling that's been going on in this. Uh, I don't know, but they're always hedge funds are always a nice culprit um, to point the bone at if you know when things go differently from what you expect. Um, um, but no, there is no major player. The value of the Australian dollar is pretty much set every day, every hour, every minute, essentially by the collective views of the market participants. And they're the currency traders. That's correct. Yeah. So they're the ones that make it fluctuate. The currency traders, based on uh, well, we're considered to be a resource country. Yeah, well, the main reason, there are two main reasons why the um, Australian dollar has fallen significantly in the past three months. Number one is that the US dollar has actually gone up, mm. not just against us, but against everybody else. And that's responsible actually for about more than a third of the downturn in the Australian dollar. The rest is essentially because through mm. all the um, stuff that's been going on the last two or three months, people have downgraded their... Um, forecasts of world economic growth and hence of expected commodity prices and that there's been a knee-jerk reaction boy lower, lower commodity prices lower australian dollar and that's actually been quite good for our um commodity producers because yeah the price of what they produce has fallen but they've been protected by a fall in the currency you'll frequently hear people say over oh, as if that's the end of the story but when your currency falls um uh, if because commodity prices have fallen, that only transfers the cost. The cost has gone, if you like, from the exporters to the importers. Interesting. Now, we believe that America's in a bit of strife. Why would their currency be going up? Uh, that's a very, very good question. Um, I suppose that it's still sort of the US dollar is still sort of considered as a safe haven. So somewhat paradoxically, you know, when the world is suddenly a riskier place and the risk is coming from the US, you go to what is what is perceived to be the least risky asset, which is the US dollar. <laughs> um, you know, it's, um, it, is, it is bizarre, but that, that's what's happening. Let's talk about the word, and I don't like talking about these words, recessions, uh, because... I think a recession is something that little break between going into school and lunchtime, wasn't it? I think in my day at school. 
And again in the afternoon. Yeah. And in the afternoon. And then, of course, a depression is a mental state of mind or weather pattern. But anyway, the recession. The world recession seems to strike fear into a lot of us. But is it just a recess in the planet's relentless growth? And, well, well I suppose so. Yes, it's a temporary interruption. But, um, you know, temporary, you know, in the long run, we're all dead, if you like. So, um, in, <laughs> you know, in the short run, a recession can feel pretty bad. Um uh, to you know, if you, if you keep your job and you're a long-term investor, then uh, it might seem that not very much has happened. If you lose your job, or um, you you know you're, you've retired and suddenly your um, your allocated pension is a lot lot less than it used to be, um, recessions are very very meaningful things indeed. Now, a recession is a fall in gross domestic product, or over two or more consecutive quarters, I believe. So the curious thing about a recession is, uh, it's is you. Can can be out of it before you realise you're in it. Uh, that's correct. Um, the, that definition you used is, incidentally, is not the official definition of a recession mm. anywhere in the world that I'm aware of. But right. it is it is the popular media definition. Um, and yeah, it's, it, take, it takes some you, you it takes some time before you realise that's what's happened. And yes, it is quite often the case that uh, the US, for example, actually announces. Um, that when they've had a recession and they announced it when it began by a month and they look at a lot more things than just falling output. But for example, in 2001, they made, they announced that the economy had fallen into recession in March of that year and they made that announcement in November. <laughs> so fair enough. It was a past thing. Yeah, and sometime later they announced that a recovery had begun in October. So the recession announcement actually pre, you know, post-dated that, the beginning of the recovery. Um, so, so actually they announced they were in a recession in November, but they said they were in a recovery in October. No, well, no, no, they said the recovery began in October, but they didn't make that announcement for for many moons afterwards. Ah, fair enough, I see. Now, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people have been talking about China and India. Look, China and India, the, populous, the biggest populated uh, area in the world, but lacking, of course, world leadership. Now, the USA influence probably is waning a little bit as a superpower. Are we seeing a change of world power as we did in, say, the 30s and 50s when the UK was once considered the superpower and it lost its influence to the USA? Are we seeing this now or not? Yeah, I think the US lost, the UK lost its position before the 30s, I would have Wouldn't thought. Wouldn't it? But, um, hmm? but, um, yeah, yes. Um, in fact, the UK example is very instructive because it does teach you that it can happen. Hmm. Um, and, you know, there are two things. First of all, it can sort of happen in continuous time. Other economies just get bigger. And the Chinese economy one day in the not-too-distant future will be bigger than the uh, U.S. economy is. And that'll be the first time that's been, you know, any other economy is big, bigger than the U.S. for hundreds of years. Um, the uh, But, you know, that doesn't mean that on that day suddenly we'll no longer quote the Australian dollar and U.S. dollars. We'll start quoting it in renminbi. Um, so, you know, the... Uh, uh, basically, when 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 China or somewhere else becomes the biggest financial mm. market entity in the world, will be many years down the track. The um, the US will be number one um, for pretty much uh, for a long time yet, but it has lost a lot of its glamour, hasn't it? No, I would suggest that. Look, indications of the China's demand for resources may decline, which may cause a slowing in the Australian economy. Yet many commentators say China's okay for the next 15 years. If China does reduce its demand, and that's what we think we're seeing, what effect overall will it have on the Australian economy? Well, there's no, there's the, the first of all, I don't think um, the demand in China will 
decrease, and if it does, it won't be for all that long. But importantly, the rate of growth of um, demand for our resources uh, will be interrupted at some stage, and that could already be happening. Commodity prices around the world have been caught up in the financial market turmoil in the past two or three months. They've come down significantly. It's already had a big effect on Australia. Our resource sector um, in the share market fell by 29% in the September quarter, and that's the biggest fall we've had mm. at a resource sector. And more generally, <coughs> excuse me, more generally, just from an economic point of view, the in the past five years, the commodity price boom mm. has meant that the price of what Australia sells to the rest of the world, relative to the price of what we buy from the rest of the world, has gone up by 65%. Now, that's massive. It is. We, ex- we export 20% of GDP, so if the relative price of that bit's gone up by 65%, that's a 13% real income, income gain to the Australian economy. Mm-hmm. That's, that's um, been massive for growth. It's been the primary source of finance of the individual income tax cuts we've seen. There's the dark side of this coming, uh, and um, when commodity prices do fall, mm-hmm. um, then, well, as they fall further, uh, it's going to be harder for the Australian economy to grow. But importantly, the medium-term outlook for commodity prices still looks quite good, mainly because of the long-term China industry. Because there's a lot of growth within China itself. It hasn't got to sell to the rest of the world its own population. That's true, but it can't exist without. Mm, no, fair enough. Then it's exports to the rest of the world. Chris, uh, on behalf of 2NURFM 103.7, all our listeners, thank you very much indeed for being our guest today and bringing us up to date and your thoughts on the the, the world uh, challenge at the moment. Uh, wish you all the very best. Keep healthy and happy and safe, and uh, we will have you back one day in the near future. I look forward to that. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris, very much. This is Finance Talkback.